This is No Bull from Lawfare. Hearings, briefings, and speeches with the fat stripped out. When most Americans hear intelligence, they think of a CIA officer recruiting spies or an NSA analyst listening to phone calls. But collection on domestic terrorism is and must remain different. It consists largely of gathering publicly available information or information gathered in law enforcement investigation. Analysts then review it to better understand the threat and help policymakers mitigate it. So we ask you today, how are you distinguishing from protected speech on these online platforms from conduct on the road of escalation to violence? And how are you working with the private sector and social media companies in particular to identify and share information about these threats while still protecting individual privacy rights on these platforms? We're grateful for your presence, and I stand ready and eager to assist you in your mission, as we all do. I'll now turn to Ranking Member Crawford for any comments he wishes to make. Chairman Carson, Ranking Member Crawford, and members of the subcommittee, I'm honored to be here today representing the dedicated men and women of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you to discuss the current domestic terrorism threat picture. It goes without saying that the threat from domestic terrorism is heightened and a significant increase in the last 18 months. Today, I want to take an opportunity to highlight the FBI's investigative and analytical resources that are being used to combat this threat. First and foremost, the United States faces a complex threat landscape driven by a broad set of violent extremist ideologies. FBI investigations into domestic violent extremists, or DVEs, have more than doubled over the last year, and we're currently conducting approximately 2,700 investigations on domestic violent extremists. In the FBI's discussion of domestic terrorism threats, we use words violent extremism to define these threats because the underlying political or social positions and the advocacy of such beliefs are not prohibited by U.S. law. It is always important to remember the FBI cannot open an investigation based solely on First Amendment protected activity. As such, the FBI divides the domestic terrorism threat into five broad categories. One, racially or ethnically motivated extremism. Two, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremism which has three subcategories, militia, militia violent extremism, anarchist violent extremism, and sovereign citizen violent extremism. Number three, animal rights and environmental, environmental extremism. Four, abortion-related violent extremism. And finally, five, all other domestic threats, which consist of domestic violent extremists with blended or personalized extremist ideologies not otherwise defined under one of the previous categories I mentioned. We assess that racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists advocating for the superiority of the white race and anti-authority or anti-government violent extremists, specifically militia violent extremists, present the most lethal threats with racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists most likely to conduct mass casualty attacks against civilians. And militia violent extremists typically targeting law enforcement and government personnel and facilities. From 2010 through 2020, Racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists advocating for the spirit of the white race have killed, have committed 18 lethal attacks in the United States, killing 70 people, including those in Charleston, Charlottesville, Pittsburgh, and El Paso. They typically targeted large public gatherings and houses of worship. It is important to remember that preventing acts of terrorism is the FBI's number one priority. The greatest terrorism threat facing our homeland is that posed by lone actors in small cells who typically radicalize online look to use easily accessible weapons to attack soft targets. We see this threat within both 
homegrown violent extremists or HVEs who, in, who are inspired preliminary, primarily by foreign counterterrorists and domestic violent extremists. We want to assure the subcommittee and the American people that the FBI focuses its efforts on all threats of terrorism and continues to shift resources to remain commensurate with this ever-evolving threat. In conclusion, consistent with our mission, the FBI holds sacred the rights of individuals to peacefully exercise their First Amendment rights. Regardless of ideology, the FBI aggressively pursues those who seek to hijack legitimate First Amendment protected activity by engaging in violent criminal activity, such as the destruction of property and violent assaults on law enforcement officers that we witnessed on January 6th and during the protests throughout the U.S. during the summer of 2020. The FBI will actively pursue the opening of investigations when an individual uses, threatens use of force, violence, or coercion in, violence, in violation of federal law and in furtherance of social or political goals. I look forward to answering your questions. Chairman Carson, Ranking Member Crawford, uh, members of the committee, uh, thank you uh, for asking uh, the department to appear before you today. It, it truly is a pleasure. I have found uh, since returning to the department uh, in January uh, that the opportunity to have open and public discussion with members of Congress on threat-related issues has been incredibly valuable. Uh, this is an important conversation. Uh, I've spent over 35 years in working in homeland security, law enforcement, national security, and I have to say that the period of threat that we are in today is one of the most complex, volatile, and dynamic that I've experienced in my career. Um, and while we are here today talking about domestic terrorism, I am mindful of the fact that at the same time we at the department are working closely with the FBI, um, with our state and local partners, with our foreign counterparts to deal with a broad range of threats, including an evolving threat posed by foreign terrorist groups, uh, violent crime that has in the midst of a multi-year increase in cities across the country, efforts by foreign intelligence uh, uh, agencies to collect sensitive information and engage in covert operations within the United States, it, which includes the use of influence operations and disinformation campaigns intended to sow discord, undermine credibility and confidence in our government and our government institutions, um, destabilize our society, inspire acts of violence, and even uh, undermine our relationship with our key allies. We're dealing with a range of cyber threats, uh, as well as an evolving uh, migration situation along the southern border. So we have a lot on our plate. Um, but as uh, the assistant director uh, indicated, uh, when we look at the issue of lethal threats facing the United States today, um, uh, the, the primary terrorism-related threat facing the U.S. comes from lone offenders uh, and individual and small groups of individuals who are motivated by extremist ideologies. Um, I'd like to, to build on the assistant director's um, uh, opening statement uh, and go a little bit more into detail on the dynamics of the threat that we are seeing um, based on our analysis at the department. This is a threat that's both organizational and individual in its structure. Yes, we have groups of people who will coalesce around uh, extremist ideological beliefs and even engage in violence and destructive behavior in furtherance of those extremist beliefs. But when we look at lethal attacks that have been conducted in this country over the last several years, it is a very individualized threat. So what do I mean by that? Um, as repeatedly assessed by DHS and the FBI, uh, the threat primarily comes from lone offenders who engage in violent activity inspired by extremist beliefs and or personal grievances 
typically cultivated through the consumption of online content. We have experienced attacks in this country over the last several years that have been motivated by beliefs uh, associated with racial superiority, hatred of immigrants uh, or others due to their religious beliefs, their gender, their sexual orientation, an individual or group of individuals' distrust of government or government institutions, or even the belief that we shouldn't have a government and we should live in an anarchist-type environment. This is a trend, as I mentioned before, that has, didn't just appear over the last year. This is something we began to observe going back to 2013, 2014 time period. And while, again, looking at lethal attacks in the United States, while the specific motives behind these attacks vary, analysis tells us that many of the attackers share common behavioral characteristics. In particular, they are angry, they feel socially disconnected, they're seeking a sense of life meaning, they spend significant time online, and ultimately self-connect with a cause or grievance to justify the use of violence as a way to express their anger and achieve a sense of social connection and self-worth. A phrase you'll often hear, we will use in the analytic community is, it's not the ideology, it's the psychology. And that is a reference to the fact that a major part of the threat environment today is based on the anger that is so um, prevalent across our society and the belief that violence is an appropriate way to express that anger by a growing number of people within our society. This is a threat that does not fit neatly into traditional terrorism or extremism-related definitional categories. Those who engage in violence often self-connect with a combination of extremist beliefs or a blend of extremist beliefs and personal grievances. While the assistant director referenced a number for lethal attacks that are associated with domestic terrorism, I would actually argue the numbers of those who have been killed are much higher. When we look at attacks like Sutherland Springs in Texas or in Las Vegas, uh, or in other parts of the country, it's very often difficult to discern whether the motive behind the attack is an ideological belief system or a personal grievance or a combination of both. This is a threat that manifests itself both in the physical and digital environments. Online content, disinformation, false narratives, conspiracy theories spread by foreign nation states, international terrorist groups, extremist thought leaders fuel much of the violence we are experiencing. This is a really important point that was referenced by Chairman Schiff, Mr. Carson, uh, and others uh, recently. Domestic and foreign threat actors purposely seek to exploit the fractures in our society, the anger and discord associated with our political discourse to sow discord, inspire violence, and destabilize our society. Individuals preparing to conduct attacks of, acts of violence will often discuss their plans online, both on private and public forums. Understanding all of this is, is critically important because it provides context to what I, I'm sure we will discuss later today um, with regard to how the department has structured itself to work with the FBI and others to address this issue. But if I may, uh, focus on, on, a, on a couple sort of key issues. One, we need to think differently about intelligence. This threat requires we think differently about how we look at information. Pre-incident indicators may be apparent through public action or communications. Covert collection may often not be necessary to capture valuable intelligence, but analysts need to be able to distinguish, as was repeatedly stated by Mr. Crawford, have to be able to distinguish between constitutionally protected speech and threat-related activity. Prevention. One of the tools that the U.S. has used over the past 20 years to prevent terrorist attacks in the United States are joint terrorism task forces. They are incredibly effective. They have saved lives. 
But in the current threat environment, we have come to learn that we, there have to be other violent prevention activities that complement the JTTFs. JTTFs may, may not be enough. Community-based prevention programs can address the threat posed by high-risk individuals who do not reach the investigative threshold necessary for a terrorism-related investigation. The department has expanded uh, the provision of grant funding, training, technical assistance to local communities so that law enforcement, mental health professionals, social service providers, educators, community groups can work together to identify those in individuals who are high risk of conducting a violent attack and mitigate the risk posed by those individuals. This means being able to share at an unclassified level analysis regarding the threat to those entities at the, at the local level so they can be a part of, um, um, be part of violence prevention activities. Let me conclude by making a, a point very strongly because I agree with the comments that have been made today about the need for law enforcement and intelligence assets not to be leveraged to address constitutionally protected behavior. We do not at the department police thought. It is not our job to engage in activities intended to target individuals because of their political beliefs, their social views, their, their beliefs on race and religion. It is our job to prevent acts of violence. And regardless of the ideological belief or personal grievances that motivate that violence, it is our job to protect our communities and work to protect the nation. Thank you, I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Cohen. With that, um, I'll lead with a question. Mr. Cohen, you've testified previously about DHS's efforts, including through the Office of Security and the Human Capital Office, to evaluate and open investigations into domestic violent extremist behavior by government employees. Can you, sir, provide an update on these efforts and describe INA's current assessment of the steps that white supremacists are taking to infiltrate your organization and law enforcement as well as military communities more generally? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that question. Uh, like you, Mr. Chairman, I'm a former police officer. I'm very proud of my profession. Um, I have worked in, in, in law enforcement or homeland security-related activities, for, as I mentioned, for, for multiple decades. Um, unfortunately, there are those in our community who are susceptible to the same forces that are in serving to inspire other members of our society to adopt or self-connect with ideological beliefs. And when it comes to those of us who are in the national security or law enforcement professions, we have to be extra vigilant to ensure that one's personal belief systems, whether they be extremist or not, do not influence discriminatory actions by those who are entrusted to enforce our laws. So the Secretary Mayorkas uh, has asked the Office of the Chief Security Officer, uh, our Human Resources Office, uh, all of our components to look at open investigations that may be in place uh, regarding individuals who may potentially be in, engaged in illegal or inappropriate behavior based on their holding or connecting with extremist belief systems. Uh, we are also ensuring that as we look to evaluate uh, new hires uh, and as we seek to uh, evaluate the behavior of our employees, particularly those who are on the front line in enforcing our laws, uh, they are doing so in a way that is non-discriminatory and not informed by extremist um, belief systems. Thank you, sir. And uh, Director Langan, do you share my view that active involvement in a white supremacist organization or failing to act against extremist harassment and intimidation is incompatible with effective policing? Uh, definitely. I think uh, 
echo Mr. Cohen. Yes, of course. Um, to echo the, the statements of Mr. Cohen, the, um, the appropriate vetting and thorough vetting of individuals that are in positions of trust is paramount in this country to ensure that we have people that uh, uphold the values of the Constitution and of the people of the country. Uh, so let me ask you about a hypothetical. Let's say there was a, an explosion um, on the mall that killed dozens of people. Uh, and uh, in the hours after the explosion, it wasn't clear who planted the bomb or what their motivation should be. Um, can you both describe for us uh, what role DHS, INA would play, what role the Bureau would play in trying to determine who is responsible for that uh, and how it might inhibit your work if you were prohibited from doing that investigative or analysis work until a foreign nexus could be identified? Thank you, Chairman, for the question. So um, unfortunately, that scenario, not necessarily exactly there, but it has been played out before. So initially, it is very difficult to determine the nature and the motive of an attack that happens throughout the country. So uh, initially, the uh, response from the government, uh, usually local law enforcement, the FBI, DHS, other uh, government agencies, would quickly try to work together to first determine the existence of the continuation of that threat that may have stemmed from that initial uh, action. Uh, then trying to determine the individuals involved, motives, uh, and uh, the planning that went into such. So as, as such, the an analysis that occurs and the information that is gleaned from that investigation is crucial to determine what caused that, that incident. Uh, so as far as if you're referring to the analytical nature of intelligence, the FBI is, of course, a, um, a two-dual-hatted uh, agency. We're a criminal organization, criminal investigative organization, and we're also the domestic intelligence service for the United States. Uh, as such, we combine those two missions. Uh, we combine uh, gathering information and intelligence uh, to be used in criminal prosecutions along with a uh, national security mission. And we have very uh, distinct lines between how those are used. But on the initial um, uh, reaction of the investigation, the initial response, uh, there would be a, a large combined effort to determine uh, the extent of the purpose of that, that attack, the extent of those involved, and, and what, uh, what planning was, was involved in that attack. And, and how would it uh, inhibit uh, your work, uh, Mr. Cohen, if you couldn't undertake the analysis until there was already a conclusion about a foreign link to it? Mr. Chairman, thank you for that uh, question. It would impede our ability to gather and analyze information provided by state local authorities uh, and the private sector that may be relevant to the attack. It would preclude our ability to conduct and engage with CBP and others within the department to do travel pattern analysis to see if we could determine any type of causal link um, or, or operational links between individuals who may have been identified as, as being associated with the attack and others in the United States. Uh, it would impede our ability to look at online activities, see if there was indicators um, that uh, were uh, associated with the attack that may give us more insight uh, into, uh, uh, into what we're doing. It would essentially uh, preclude our ability uh, to engage uh, and support um, the activities associated with investigating that, that operation until such time that a foreign nexus was determined. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. 
Mr. Uh, Cohen, um, first of all, I, I want to say that uh, my understanding is that <clears throat> you don't seek to be doing surveillance in a manner that uh, uh, Mr. Stewart and I think all of us object to. Is that correct? Yes, Congressman, that is correct. And in fact, there are significant restrictions on the use of intelligence community collection platforms within the domestic environment. So we're not talking about using the awesome power of the NSA against U.S. persons um, while they're in the United States as we engage in identifying threats of violence. Okay, Mr. Langan, same thing. I mean, you have different authorities at the... Go ahead. Yes, no, I concur with that as well. All right. Uh, let me just ask Mr. Cohen about, in September 18, there were radical right-wing supporters of the January 6th insurrectionists gathered at the Capitol, and you've testified uh, that there was similar traffic on public-facing websites to what was seen before uh, January 6th, but there was no similar level of violence. <clears throat> Why do you assess there was less violence at, the, at that event? So that's a, a really interesting question, Congressman. Um, and I think it provides a good illustration of what we are doing and what we're not doing. Uh, as we were evaluating uh, activity on, uh, online in online communities and platforms commonly used by uh, violent domestic extremists, uh, we saw discussions um, that uh, focused on the, the, an event to be held in Washington, D.C. on September 18th. Initially, we did not see any references to violence, so we did not collect information, we did not disseminate information, um, until we began to see woven into those conversations specific calls for violent and illegal acts, the kidnapping of a member of Congress, the attack of liberal churches, mm -hmm. uh, attacks against Jewish facilities. Um, we began seeing calls by counter-protesters to come to D.C. and engage in violent acts. When we began seeing a nexus with violent activity, mm -hmm. that is when we began working closely with the FBI. We began a, additional analysis. We worked with state and locals, and we issued uh, public statements referring to the potential threat. And to some degree, what we have come to believe is that our focus on these events and the security measures that are put in place in response actually serves as a deterrent effect to acts of violence. Thank you. And what about just the process of sharing information uh, with, uh, I mean, partnerships with state and local governments uh, where we get a database of what these threats are? Can you uh, address the need to do that, have better and more reliable statistics? Well, I'll defer to the assistant director to talk about it from an investigative perspective, but as I mentioned in my opening statement, uh, there are examples where acts of violence, acts of targeted violence had been prevented by threat management strategies employed at the local level. So it is critical that local authorities, whether it be law enforcement or others, have an understanding of the threat, have an understanding of the behavioral indicators associated with a threat, so they can recognize those behaviors and those indicators should they be present in so, their community. So would it be helpful to basically uh, institutionalize a reporting requirement at the state and local level? so that that information is available and not just sometimes made available. I believe it would be. Anything to add? No, I think that could be useful, sir. I think as, as far as uh, sharing and disseminating information currently, the foundation of which we use it are our, our GTTFs, which we have over 200 throughout the country, and then in addition, uh, producing intelligence products that go out to a much wider distributed audience as well. You know, I share the concern expressed by my Republican colleagues about individual rights and civil liberties. 
And let me, we don't have that much time, so I'll start with you, Mr. Cohen. What are the agencies doing to ensure, to ensure that individual civil, civil rights and civil liberties are protected? My analyst and the individuals who uh, engage in um, information gathering, uh, they have to receive training uh, on, uh, so that they're able to distinguish between constitutionally protected activity uh, and that that may be threat related. Uh, we have uh, extensive oversight that involves uh, our lawyers from the Intelligence Law Division, um, our Intelligence Community Oversight Officer, but also our Privacy and our Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Officers. I say this, and I mean this you know, as somebody who, again, um, I've been a police officer, I've arrested a lot of people, I'm very focused on, um, on conducting operations to protect the country. My two closest partners in the department today is the privacy officer and the civil rights and civil liberties officers. Even the perception that we are infringing on people's constitutionally protected rights will undermine, I think as correctly pointed out, would undermine the credibility of our efforts to protect our communities from violence. Uh, thank you very much. I yield back. Uh, Mr. Cohen, you talked, both of you talked about the importance of local law enforcement in working uh, together and how impactful that is on your investigations and the work that you do on, on both levels when it comes to domestic violence. Uh, in, in a prior life, I spent time as a federal prosecutor and actually headed up a JTTF. And, and that experience of working with local law enforcement, whether it's a sheriff's department, local police department, state troopers, is... Uh, you know, obviously um, the foundation of much of what you guys do. Having said that, as I look at this movement to defund police, get rid of departments, I can't think of anything that would be more disruptive um, and more problematic to the work that you do at the local level to disrupt than that. I I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Uh, thank you, Congressman. Um, this won't be a surprise to anybody who knows me. I believe we that law enforcement is an important part of our society. Uh, there are men and women who work in law enforcement each and every day who are focused on safeguarding the community, who go to work each day, put their lives at risk um, so that they can um, help the, the country be a better place. Um, policing or law enforcement in our country has to be non-discriminatory. Um, uh, enforcement actions should not be, uh, be, be carried out uh, driven by uh, implicit or overt bias. We should do everything we can to make sure law enforcement uh, engages in their day-to-day act, uh, -day activities in a legal, non-discriminatory manner. Uh, Mr. Langan, you talked a little bit about um, uh, online uh, information and disinformation and how, um, how that has been used to exploit many of these DV cases that you've talked about and uh, social media. In terms of, I mean, we've been grappling on Capitol, here, on Capitol Hill about what to do about social media. A lot of suggestions out there, everything from, uh, you know, Section 230 liability protection for online platforms and what we do there. How do we hold these tech companies accountable? How do we break them up? Uh, what we need to do. Um, as you look at the work and, and how the role of social media plays in many of these lone rangers, as you describe them, what should we be doing to help remedy that problem? Well, thank you, sir. So there's, there's three distinct lines that the FBI follows. One, um, first off, that we very much encourage citizens, individuals to come forward when they have information, when they see information of extreme rhetoric, of violence being discussed online, that that is one, one potential avenue for it to come to us. Like, like in the past, reporting things when things are, uh, when people have concerns about things. 
The second level is direct engagement with, with companies in the private sector, whether it is a tech company or an, uh, uh, any other private sector, but the Bureau heavily engages with members of the tech industry along with other private sectors to talk about how they can be responsible in reporting uh, is, uh, instances of violence, individuals that are concerned reporting them to us at the FBI or to Let other Let me just interrupt there. But but so, so having said that, I mean, have you seen positive changes that have been implemented uh, along those lines that have been productive to the work that you do? We have seen uh, oftentimes when companies have come to us with information that will help us or concerns, and we engage with training uh, with them to what to look for, our concerns. There's been several cases that uh, we've worked together to disrupt violent acts before they happened. Um, but there is a massive amount of information out there and a massive amount of, of rhetoric and, and, and speech that could lead to potentially violent acts. Uh, the, third, the third level and the third tier that we look towards is increase our own uh, uh, source base of information, of individuals that will provide us information about ongoings of individuals that would like to commit acts of violence. Um, in addition to that, we continue to, to try to attempt to uh, close the gap on uh, warrant-proof encryption. So uh, people, especially criminals, that are using uh, techniques and platforms and, and applications that have end-to-end -end encryption that are um, outside the ability for uh, rightful warrant um, pursued uh, information that uh, we would we continue to look for, for ways to, to help with that. Thank uh, you. Thank I'm you, out of time. Chairman Carson, back. for calling this important hearing. Uh, the rise of white nationalist extremism is something that we've seen directly in Texas, as you all know. Uh, two years ago, over 20 people were killed by a man who said he wanted to quote, kill Mexicans. He ended up killing a bunch of Americans. The deadliest attack, it was the deadliest attack on Latino Americans in modern history, in fact. And in the last few weeks, San Antonio and Austin have suffered a series of anti-Semitic attacks with businesses defaced with swastikas and the local Jewish community being intimidated. We've seen white nationalists openly wearing Nazi clothing rally outside the San Antonio Holocaust Museum and deny the Holocaust. Uh, so I want to ask you, Mr. Langan, what will the FBI do to investigate these incidents in South Texas and others like them? Thank you, sir. So for one, the FBI is uh, engaged with local law enforcement uh, extensively in identifying crimes, whether it's a hate crime or whether it is uh, a part of, an, of a group that uh, uh, follows the, um, the uh, promotion of a white supremacist uh, uh, advocates for a supremacy of the white race. Uh, we have elevated the racially motivated violent extremists to one of our highest level of threats in the counterterrorism division. As I said earlier, uh, counterterrorism remains the highest priority of the FBI. And within that, um, racially motivated violent extremism is at the top uh, equal to that of the threat of, of foreign terrorists such as ISIS. So we focus a great deal of resources, focus on trying to disrupt and uh, stop that activity and identify those individuals that may be responsible for them. We take the very seriously. Well, thank you. Well, taking on white national extremism is something that I'm glad this administration is committed to doing, uh, but we have to ask ourselves what happens when those holding these views are part of the nation's law enforcement arms. Uh, a report last month by the Oversight and Reform Committee found that CBP agents who posted offensive and racist messages on Facebook chats against agency policy were found to have engaged in misconduct. While the Discipline Review Board recommended certain punishment, 
Ultimately, the officers face far reduced penalties. Quoting the report, quote, a Border Patrol agent who posted a sexually explicit doctored image and derogatory comments about a member of Congress had his discipline reduced from a removal to a 60-day suspension and was awarded back pay. A Border Patrol supervisor who improperly posted an internal CBP video of a migrant falling off a cliff to their death, as well as an explicit and offensive comment about a member of Congress, had their discipline reduced from a removal to a 30-day suspension. And there are many other examples cited in the report. So I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Cohen, how is DHS able to effectively take on white nationalist extremist groups when DHS employees who echo such views are barely punished? Uh, that's a fair con uh, question, Congressman. Uh, that is why the, at the direction of the Secretary, we have uh, instituted a, a, a serious effort to uh, look at uh, the rules that govern disciplinary, that the hiring of personnel, the disciplinary actions taken against personnel, uh, the rules that govern retention of personnel, uh, so that uh, these types of situations can be addressed in a consistent manner across the department. And, and your point is well taken. Uh, if, one is in, if one is entrusted to enforce the laws of this country, even the perception that this person's actions are being influenced by racist, uh, or other extremist beliefs uh, undermines the credibility of the organization. So it's something we take very seriously at the department and we're working to address. Sure, and as a follow-up, you know, if DHS is looking for an expanded role in tackling extremism in the United States, how can you assure us that the DHS officers with those responsibilities will do their work in an unbiased way? I think it goes to um, you know, what I described earlier, but it also uh, is, a, is a part of uh, the leadership of the department. Leadership has to send a strong message uh, to our workforce uh, that uh, racist or inappropriately influenced activities will not be tolerated, and it needs to be taken seriously, and allegations need to be investigated, uh, and when warranted, action needs to be taken. This is the politicization at the Department of Justice without facts to support the alleged growing threat and need for federal investigation, specifically targeting parents and parental groups. We now know that the letter that the School Board Association released a statement to its member rescinding the letter, saying they, quote, regret and apologize, and yet the Attorney General has not retracted this memo. Um, I have a few yes or no questions. Has the FBI held any of these meetings directed by Attorney General Garland? Yes or no? I don't know that. They were led by the U.S. Attorney's offices, so I, I would think that it's best directed. In conjunction with the FBI? I do not have that number. But they have were, they held? So they have held meetings. What's the number? I do not know, ma'am. We can we can look into it though. I believe the date was by today. It was led by the U.S. Attorney's Office. In, we'll in conjunction with the FBI. Yes, ma'am. And we will we'll get you that number. But I do not have that information because it was the the date was supposed to be today, and it's being coordinated by the 94 different jurisdictions. But in, the invited was the FBI to attend. Correct. Um, does the FBI consider parents domestic terrorists? No. How, do parents who oppose CRT, are they considered domestic terrorists? No, to my knowledge. No to your no. knowledge? No, as long as the individuals are not committing federal violations, force or violence, or in promotion of an ideology, they would not be. Um, are parents who oppose mask mandates committed, com considered domestic terrorists? No. 
let me ask you this. What are your thoughts? Because the general, the Attorney General Garland memo was based upon the School Board's Association letter, which has now been rescinded, why has the department not rescinded the Garland memo? You, you would have to refer that question to the Department of Justice. Do you think that it should be rescinded? I'm not going to speak on behalf of the Attorney General, ma'am. Do you have any other thoughts to add? Um, I would only add that... Uh, in addition to the letter that was submitted, there were actual calls for violence um, directed at teachers, uh, school board administrators, uh, and, and others in the educational environment uh, on uh, extremist platforms. Uh, we, uh, we did reach out to state and local law enforcement. There have been some sporadic uh, incidents of violence at school board meetings and, and, um, and in, in educational facilities. However, uh, the information we received is that uh, state and local law enforcement, we're not seeing widespread action. So we're continuing to work with state and locals to maintain awareness of the environment if there are threats of violence directed at anybody, because the, the threats were not just posted, not focused on school administrators and in the information that we were analyzing, uh, but it also included threats against law enforcement and public health officials who were giving vaccines and involved in, um, uh, in other public health-related activities associated with COVID. So it's just something we continue to evaluate. But you are aware that the Attorney General said under oath when he testified that the relevant factor in the Garland memo was the school board's association letter. You are aware of that? I did not watch the, the, the Attorney General's um, Well, that's what testimony. he said, and you're answering very differently here today. He said that that was the reason for the memo that was put out by the Department of Justice, um, and obviously <clears throat> voters spoke loudly and clearly in Virginia last uh, night. Is membership in a white supremacist organization disqualifying for people applying to the FBI or work at the FBI, Mr. Langan? Yes. Uh, isn't membership in that type of organization inconsistent with the effect law enforcement? Yes. Um, how is the FBI coordinating with local and state law enforcement about incoming threats and information about white supremacists and other uh, DBEs? I know having worked at the Fusion Center, um, there was an analyst assigned there as well as, you know, you guys built a skiff there. But there was always some tension with local law enforcement, as you know, and the FBI because there was a sentiment that, you know, local law enforcement does the work and the FBI comes in at the last minute and the press shows up. I, 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 I think in many cases that's unfair. But uh, has have those coordinating efforts improved over time? The past you know, decade? you know, sir. Often I've been in law enforcement now for 28 years and served for the government for 31 years. I actually have not found that that often. There's definitely rivalries or there's definitely frictions that occur on an individual basis. But I found the coordination between local state officials and the FBI in the FBI to be very wholesome. Um, of course, there's at times prosecutorial differences on uh, if the case should be worked at a, at a state level or federal level. But again, I, I'll refer back to the foundation of what our sharing is and those 200 joint terrorism task force with, with almost 4,500 agents and officers working hand in hand together. So when information reaches their departments that potentially contains uh, a federal violation, uh, ideology, the concern of a JTTF, then that information is forwarded from that, that task force officer into the JTTF. They can review that information to determine if there's enough predication to move forward with a potential investigation. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Cohen, it's no secret that the IC failed to adequately warn of the insurrection that occurred on January 6th. Uh, sir, can you explain what specific procedures have changed and what reforms have been instituted post-January 6th? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, I think there are a lot of lessons that we in law enforcement and, and in the intelligence 
uh, analytic world learned from January 6th, both the events of that day and the, the weeks leading up. Uh, to, my, to the point I made in my opening statement, um, the, the understanding that indications regarding an emerging threat may be, pub on, may be uh, available through public information that's being, that, that is analyzed by analysis. What we have done since January 6th at the department is we have redoubled all our efforts to coordinate uh, the sharing of threat-related information that we acquire uh, or that comes to us through our relationships with state and local uh, private sector uh, with the FBI um, and, and others in the federal community. We have uh, become much more uh, forward-leaning as it relates to uh, the analyzing of online activity. Uh, and uh, evaluating activity from the perspective of the potential risk of violence. Uh, we have, uh, I would say that we are probably much more cognizant and mindful about incorporating that threat-related uh, information into operational planning. And I think a, a very good uh, sort of example of the differences that exist today versus on January 6th would be one just to simply look at what happened on Inauguration Day. After January 6th, uh, the analysis of online activity did not reflect that those who were here on January 6th viewed it as a victory and as the end point of their efforts. They actually saw it as a starting point. Uh, and there were calls online uh, for additional acts of violence to be committed both in, in the District of Columbia and in state capitals around the country um, on Inauguration Day or in and around Inauguration Day. The response by law enforcement was very different. The response here in Washington included physical security measures in and around the Capitol and other locations, uh, a highly visible presence of National Guard, highly visible presence of law enforcement, um, a very overt and public security presence in and around District of Columbia and state capitals around the country. Well, what did we see reflected on social media and extremist platforms? A cognizance of those, so, those security measures and a reluctance to come to Washington because those who were planning acts of violence viewed it as a trap being set for their arrest or viewed it as not the right time to come um, and engage because of the security presence. There's a lesson in that. So our analysis has focused much more on understanding where, when there may be a potential act of violence and then taking steps, sometimes very visible steps and public steps, to create physical security um, measures that serve as a deterrent. I just want to follow up on a couple issues. Uh, first of all, um, are you seeing a rise in uh, death threats against school board members? I can't necessarily quantify it, uh, Mr. Chairman, but we are definitely seeing online activity which specifically calls for acts of violence being directed at uh, teachers, school administrators, and school board members. And those threats of violence are against those school personnel over uh, for example, decisions they're making about the health of the children in those schools? Yes, it, it's, it's included in a, a, a narrative that we have seen um, continue, which focuses on uh, public health and other restrictions uh, associated with, uh, with COVID uh, and having to do with vaccines as well. Now, I know a lot of us um, on this podium have been the subject of death threats. When we are, those are investigated by uh, Capitol Police, sometimes by federal law enforcement. Uh, we certainly want them investigated. You would agree, I assume, that death threats against school board members should be investigated similarly? Yes, Mr. Chairman. It's a fundamental part of my, our responsibility is to make sure that we take seriously threats of violence. And until we can determine that those threats 
are not valid or credible uh, to maintain and be vigilant to prevent acts of violence. And these threats of violence, these threats, these death threats are designed to try to force a change in policy, are they not? The narratives that we have examined that I have looked at have specifically um, called for acts of violence as a result of policies that are being instituted in schools. I'm not sure I'm comfortable saying what the intent of, of the poster is, um, but the, the, the content has complained about um, the, the provisions and have called on people to, uh, to threaten or to engage in violence against those, um, those school administrators, school board members, law enforcement, uh, and healthcare professionals. We're also seeing threats of violence against uh, elections officials, are we not? Yes, we have seen threats against election officials. Um, we saw that in the 2020 election, and we continue to see it today. I, I raise this because uh, I think there's been a proliferation of threats of violence, uh, politically motivated violence, um, and uh, to a, a an astonishing and dangerous degree, um, a rationalization of violence or threats of violence to bring about political change, an acceptance of political violence. Um, and I, I would just point to um, the executive summary by the ODNI of the domestic uh, violent extremist threat. All right, Congresswoman Stefanik. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. I just want to get on the record, um, Mr. Langan, you talked about the U.S. attorneys leading this. Are you aware that the October 4th memo states, quote, to this end, I am directing the Federal Bureau of, of Investigation working with each U.S. attorney to convene meetings? So the yes, ma'am, that language. So the FBI is directing this? I, the FBI is not directing it. It was the U.S. Attorney's Office that was that my understanding was going to direct the meetings and format the meetings and decide how the meetings would transpire, and we would so react. the memo from the Attorney General is not accurate? It was not followed? I don't know if it's an interpretation difference, but... I'm just reading what, what it says yes, specifically. Uh, yes, so that, that was my understanding from the Department of Justice that it would be led by the U.S. Attorney's offices. Okay, and you are aware that in... Uh, a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing last week, the Attorney General uh, stated under oath they would provide information that led to the issuing of the memo by November 1st. Um, are you aware of any reason why they have missed that deadline? I can't speak on behalf of the Department. Um, have you participated in the formulation or presentation of that memo? No. I exchanged some emails the weekend before when the initial discussion was brought up about uh, this this memo that came out of the pushing out a memo, but it was very brief. And what was no the discussion? discussion? What was the topic? Discussion that a letter came in from the uh, the school board association, and that the department was looking to put out some messaging. What was the messaging? I, I did not have the messaging. You said you were on the emails. Yes, the, and just basically that that stating that, and we could find you know whatever I need to get you to the full extent of the emails, but just that there would be something coming out. Um, it was engaged at a, a different level, lower level than me, and that was all a statement of just this was going to come out. So you will provide all the emails relating to the issuing of the Garland memo as well as any planning for messaging and as well as any uh, compilation of what the response to the senators who requested information. You'll provide those emails in that whatever, whatever I can provide you legally, I, I will. So you will provide those? Whatever I can provide you, ma'am. I will have to check with uh, our, our legal counsel office. 
Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.